But how's that? Better? Okay. I'm Pamela Pierce, and I'm director of events at Kent, and we're hatching an event at the office now that is not formed enough to give you something in writing, but I'd like you to save the date. Um, on Thursday, March 9th, we are doing a marathon reading of the Diary of Anne Frank at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church, and there'll be a daytime program, several fantastic daytime programs for children, and then in the evening, Ken will do a, a marathon reading, so save the date, okay? While I have the microphone, I want to thank you all for coming, and we're really going to be bursting out the seams, which is wonderful, because I never get to say it, but these events that the Children's Book Committee put together, puts together year after year are really among our best. The ideas are the most imaginative, and the panels are fantastic, so you're lucky to be here tonight. Okay. Is this, work, is this working now? Yes. It is. Oh, good. Well, an, another good evening. I'm Stephen Kroll, uh, the chairman of the Penn Children's Book Authors Committee, uh, and I'd like to welcome you myself here this evening uh, to our program, The Power of Fear in Books for Children and Young Adults. Uh, quite an extraordinary subject, and I think we're in for quite an extraordinary evening uh, with a an equally extraordinary group of people. I'd like now to introduce Eden Ross Lipson, who will be our moderator for this evening. Uh, Eden, as I'm sure most of you know, is the <coughs> editor of children's books for the New York Times Book Review, and has been so for 10 years. Uh, she is also uh, the author of the New York Times uh, Parents' Guide to Best Books for Children, published by Times, book, by Times Books, and is at once as charming as she is insightful. <laughs> Eden? Thank you very much. Good evening. It's, it was such a treat to be asked to come back and chair another children's panel for Penn. In 1987, I was able... I, I was able to meet Robert Cormier at another one of these panels, and it's really an enormous pleasure to be invited back again. Tonight's topic is both broad and narrow, since, as we're all aware, it is human beings who have the po possibility of imagining, and imagining almost immediately brings on both fear as well as love. I'm not going to waste your time with my thoughts. We have an extraordinary group of people assembled here, but let me tell you my plan, the structure, and the element of fear therein. <laughs> We're going to work from the outside in on the panel with, in the distance, a ticking clock. And I'm not going to tell you when, but at a magic moment, David Wiesner is going to disappear <laughs> to catch a train. <laughs> um, as I said, I'd like to work from the outside in. Perhaps, well, I think there are labels in front so you can tell exactly who's who. But may we start? The, the theory of the panel is that each of these distinguished people is going to speak to you for between seven and ten minutes. And then we'll see if there are themes that have emerged that we can talk about a bit. And then we'd very much like to take your questions. We're going to begin with Erica Tamar who is on my left, your right, who has written a dozen books for young adults, who has a theater background, who came to writing 
as an adult, and because this is the sort of panel where everybody's got so many credits, I'm going to limit myself to the title Fair Game. Erica Tamar. Thank you. Is this, is this working? How's that? Okay. I have to start off by telling you that foul-smelling green slime oozing out its sewers does not frighten me. And I am not terrorized by adolescent girls who can spin their heads in 360-degree rotations. Therefore, regretfully, I really can't mind the riches of the horror genre, the metaphoric riches. Uh, writing, for me, is at least partially a very subconscious process. And in that process, I've raised my own personal demons, real demons. I've written very different kinds of books, uh, some lighthearted, one that I thought was hilarious, and some serious. Uh, when I look back at them, I found that there's a thread that runs through all my YA novels. To a greater or a lesser degree, the focus is on the dark side, hidden beneath the sunny, normal day-to-day the dark side of pretty, wholesome communities and of charming people, the charismatic sociopaths, the shapeshifters among us. I think it's terrifying when you can't count on your perceptions when they're way off base, and there's no discordant background music to warn us. The betrayal of trust the breaking of the basic social contracts that you would expect civilized people to adhere to, and the reduction of people to objects, that's my nightmare gallery. And it shows up most predominantly in my YA novel, Fair Game. I started Fair Game because I had a really visceral response to some newspaper reports. There were a group of high school athletes who whiled away a slow afternoon by manipulating a retarded girl into a sexual performance. The media hype made it seem as if this was a unique, isolated incident. I suspect that this kind of thing happens in nice, affluent towns all over America, where it's shrugged off with, it's just one of those things. What made this incident unique was that there was a TV reporter living in the town and it was he who brought the case into its 15 minutes of headlines. I'm a storyteller. I don't set out to send a message. And most of the time, I don't really know what my subtext is until I'm near the end of the book. My real interest is in characters, and I try very hard to write from the inside out. I was writing fiction, and I did no research whatsoever, but I really knew those boys. They were the superlatives that you remember from your high school yearbook, the popular guys, the leaders. And I did not portray them as delinquents or rapists in the literal sense. They were nice to their girlfriends, reasonably nice. Um, they were protective of their mothers and sisters. They were churchgoers. They were college-bound. They were fiercely loyal to each other. They were the very normal part of American jock culture. The girl involved in the case you knew as the slow girl, the one that everyone called dummy. She was flattered by any kind of attention, 
too eager to please, um, too desperate to fit in, utterly willing and incapable of understanding that she was being treated as an inflatable plastic doll. Their main character is the girlfriend of one of the boys, and at the end of the book, she comes to realize that she too twisted herself into pretzel shapes to please and to stand by her man. I was writing about sex used for power, which I suppose is another face of the fear of powerlessness. I was exploring the values of a typical good high school in a suburb where sexism, racism, and homophobia are alive and flourishing. I got a lot of press describing the abuse scene as horrific. I think the real horror going on there throughout the book and beyond the abuse plot is the dehumanization of the, quote, other, the power of fear. I think dehumanization at the heart of all those nasty isms is fueled and justified, even if subliminally, by fear, powerful fears. Conspiracy theories, they're taking over the world. <coughs> fear of the other's mythical sexual prowess. Fear of inadequacy, fear of competition and loss, fear of the unknown, fear of being cut from the pack. And I'm sure you can add to my list. Fear is such a primal emotion. The straight horror story provides the roller coaster fun of thrills and chills when you know you're in a safe place. The good guys win in the end, and the resolution is a very satisfying catharsis for the reader. My subject matter doesn't allow easy resolutions. The good guy in Fair Game, the boy who blew the whistle, was despised as a snitch and brutalized. He did not win anything. But I'm forever optimistic, and I always hold out some hope. Sometimes unexpectedly, sometimes in the most unlikely of places, there are heroes. Thank you. On the far right, you will see one of the most distinguished practitioners of fiction for young adults in this country today. And I think one need say nothing more about Robert Cormier than the chocolate war. We could go on at great length, but wouldn't you rather hear him? Uh, the power of fear. But it's all fear, isn't it? From the moment we get up in the morning until we go to bed at night, fear, big and small, tragic or trivial, so many degrees of it, but all, all of it fear. Will they like me? Will I flunk the test? Will they think something's wrong with me? Will I make a fool of myself? Will they think I'm too fat or too thin or too tall or too short? And I'm afraid. I'm afraid they won't invite me to the party. I'm afraid they'll say no. I'm afraid they'll say some other time. I'm afraid I won't get the, won't get the, the raise or the promotion. I'm afraid she won't call. I'm afraid I won't know what to say. And what's that? What's that funny feeling? 
Is it heartburn or indigestion? Why am I sweating? My God, I might die. But I'll die if he doesn't show up. I'll die if she doesn't say yes. I'll die if I miss the bus or the train or the plane. And what if, I mean, what if I'm late? What if my car breaks down? What if it snows? What if it's too hot? What if it rains? What if it freezes over? What if she says, I think you're wonderful, but? What if he says, maybe another time? Fear, the power of it and the uses of it. I'm not talking about the strange noise in the middle of the night or the wind banging your shutters. But is it the wind? Or that stranger coming toward you on the dark street or that man across from you in the subway or the bus or the train who keeps looking at you? I'm talking, uh, and I'm not talking about monsters or vampires or werewolves or Frankenstein or Dracula. The monsters in the books or the movies are terrific. They give you the thrill of a scare. They may even make you look over your shoulder or pause and put down the book for a moment. But the thrill really is delicious because the monster is up there on the screen and you're safe in the seventh row, three seats in from the aisle with your friends, surrounded by a Saturday night crowd and eating that terrible artificially buttered soap popcorn. And the monster in the books, you read it cuddled up in the big chair, rain at the window, cars ghosting by, but nice and safe inside here, fireplace hissing or radiator banging, or furnace rumbling in the cellar, and then a feeling of disquiet. But that's not the real fear, and that's not the real monster, the one in the books. The real monster is the one inside of you that lingers, that makes you afraid of other things. That's the kind of monster I'm talking about and writing about in my novels. I'm talking about the fear at high noon, something gone wrong at 10 o'clock in the morning, and the sun splashing in the window, and you're in the restaurant and say, will you please pass the salt? And everything goes askew and something gets stuck in your throat. The horror of the commonplace gone wrong, the chief of police turning out to be the murderer. Horror is really walking down the street on a bright, beautiful afternoon in June, flowers blooming, gentle breeze blowing, and the Chevrolet Impala on the street goes out of control and kills the child you just saw putting a stick of gum in his mouth. That is horror. Uh, two of my grandchildren, Emily and Darren, who were approaching 12, love the Goosebump books. They have collections of them because they give them goosebumps, but not nightmares. Emily says she's always very scared in the middle of the book, but things always come out all right. There's a teenage boy who writes me a letter and says that I'm his favorite writer after Stephen King. <laughs> Stephen King knows the right buttons to push, he says, and fun to read. But the teenager said, I kept thinking of eyeing the cheese a couple of months after th I finished the book. I've often said in response to letters from students or when I talk to them in their classrooms in answer to that perennial question, where do you get your ideas? The ideas are, are a dime a dozen, really. They're cheap, they're everywhere. But the idea that works for me is the one that's attached or driven by an emotion. And this emotion sends me to my ancient Elsie Smith, where I devise the characters and plot to inflict this emotion on the reader. And so many times I realize that emotion has to do with fear. When I was told the topic of this panel, the power of fear in books for children and young adults, it caused me to think about what I do. And ordinarily, I don't think about 
what I do, or I don't think in the abstract. That's why I'm a novelist and not an essayist. But I thought about fear, about fear, and realized that that's what I do. I'm a purveyor of fear. I'm a merchant of menace at high noon. <laughs> I write about the terror of everyday events, the bully in the schoolyard and the merciless teacher in the classroom, the school bus driver under siege. My mother once told me that she read The Chocolate War and I and the Cheese along with her son who was in the eighth grade at the time. She said, I and the Cheese was horrible to contemplate. The government victimizes the family and especially poor Adams. But she said, although the events were more horrible in that book, she was more afraid of The Chocolate War because she said, I'm afraid that what happened in The Chocolate War could actually happen to my son. Her words, I'm afraid. Hell, we're all afraid. That's what it's all about, fear. And if you're having to be a teenage reader, the fear can be terrible, even if it's under the surface, and the fears is another constellation of that. And fourth, on my left is the prolific and entertaining and John Peel, who's got series and series. Let's do talent, Talon and Shocker, and that's enough to get him started. Yeah, um, I actually write. I would say probably four out of five books that I'm writing at the moment will be horror or horror related. So I, I'm, I'm very definitely way into this, this zone. In fact, um, the other evening, uh, a couple of weeks back, I was sitting at home trying to relax after, after having had one of my usual days of work, um, trying to come up with something new. And I, I was looking forward to a very quiet evening when the doorbell rang. And there were two young girls from the neighborhood, um, about 10 years old, very cute, very sweet. And they wanted to know when my next, next horror book was due. So I, I sort of explained. Uh, it's based on, um, th there's a very popular children's TV show called Are You Afraid of the Dark? Which, of course, is the TV equivalent of horror novels. And um, they, they had discovered from my next door neighbor, who is um, who's my fifth grade um, publicity agent, um, <laughs> that I was doing these books. So they wanted to know when they were due out. So I had to explain, well, you're, you're a little early. They're due out early March. OK, close the door. Go back to try and relax again. The doorbell rings again. There's two more young girls on the doorstep. And both of those are asking, when is this Are You Afraid of the Dark book coming out? So I, I went through the same thing again. And about 10 minutes later, the doorbell rang again, by, w by which time I was getting kind of puzzled. I mean, I don't usually have lots of young girls coming to my door <laughs> every evening. So when I opened it the third time, there were two more young girls standing outside this. So I said, what is going on here? What, you know, are, are you lining up down the street and coming up one after another? And she looked at me very puzzled and said, it's Friday the 13th. <laughs> and I honestly hadn't clicked. I mean, but, but they thought, Friday the 13th, it's time to go and visit the horror writer. <laughs> so it's pretty much the same on Halloween, only um, then we actually get to play tricks on them. But um, I used to do, I, I still do, in fact, I do school trips occasionally. I'll go and talk to the children in the classes. And when I started out, I would go in and say, well, you know, I write common San Diego books. And they'd go, hmm. And I've, I've written Star Trek, hmm, and Doctor Who, hmm, and horror books. 
and then their eyes light up. And I would, I would pull out usually one of my shocker covers because the shocker covers um, are, are quite designed to have a very visceral impact. Um, the, the one that I almost always use is a, is a book called Alien Prey. And the cover is a spider crawling out of the mouth of a, of a skull. And I would hold this cover up and the kids would go, cool. And after that I could say anything I liked and they would pay absolute rapt attention to me. It doesn't matter what other credits I had, I could have written a million books, I could have filled dozens of libraries. One horror story is enough to get their attention. And um, I, I, I sometimes hide in, in Borders or um, Barnes and Noble or other bookstores and try and look like I'm not there to molest anybody or anything, um, and, and watch the children as they come in to pick books. And almost always, they head straight for the Goosebumps series. Um, I, I'm not going to mention who writes those, because it's not me. Um, <laughs> but the, the Goosebumps series is generally the first thing they head for. Then, if they've got all of those, they actually go to the other horror books. And finally, if they can't find anything there they like, they might actually turn to something which doesn't have um, one of those kind of covers. But generally, that's where they'll head first. Um, the, the market for these books is incredible. If you look at the uh, Publishers Weekly bestseller list for, for young readers, um, almost every time, out of 10 books, you'll probably see six of them are, are horror, or seven of them are horror, and probably four or five of those are written by R.R. Stein. Um, there is a huge, huge audience for this material. And I, I'm, I'm often quite puzzled as to exactly why these kids read them. I used to have this theory that, it, that they knew these, that these were safe horror, that they could, you know, they could read these books and then if they got scared, they could put the book down and then you know, go away and then come back to it and pick it up again and, and, and get back into it. And they, they were pretty sure most of the time that there would be a happy ending. So they could, they could look forward to no matter how horrible the monster was, the main character was going to win. And I thought, this is why they were doing it. You know, it's, it's like a, a roller coaster ride. It's, it's, safe, it's safe fear. It's fear which you can control. And I, th I thought this was it. And then, but they knew that, of course, this was all fake fear as well. I mean, we're making it up. They know that. Then I got a, a, um, a very interesting fan letter from this, this boy somewhere in the Midwest who asked me some very intelligent questions and then finished the letter off by saying, do you make these stories up or do they happen to you? So after that, I thought, well, okay, some of them can tell the difference between fact and fiction, but some of them are obviously having a little problem. Um, it, it's, it's always interesting to read what, what the kids actually write. Most of the letters I get are from, like, 12-year-old girls out in the Midwest. Um, they, all, they all have names like Kristin and Jennifer, and they all seem very sweet and very lovable, and they love all the gory bits. No matter whichever book they write to me about, it's always the bit I liked best was when they threw the vampire's head through the window or something like that. You know, it doesn't matter what it is. Always they, they center on the most grisly, gruesome piece of the book. Or, or my next door neighbor, as I explained earlier, is my publicity agent for the school. Um, I, I wrote a book called Hangman, which was for the Foul Play series. And that's one of the most popular books with the kids that I've ever written. I get more mail on that one book alone than on almost all of the others. And there are two very good reasons for this. One, it's an extremely claustrophobic book. The book takes place with a sleepover, three girls in a sleepover being stalked by a maniac in their own house. They, the furthest they get is to go next door. Um, uh, everything else takes place in the house, in the dark, 
with the three girls up against someone, some menace that they can't see. And it, the, the kids love this. Kids love this thing. Um, I went to one school and uh, a group of three girls came up to me after I'd been talking and they said, guess what? Our names are, and I can't even remember the names of my own heroines here. Uh, I think it was Heather, Crystal, and um, Amber. And uh, our names are Heather, Crystal, and Amber. And uh, little Amber pipes up, yes, and I'm a wimp just like the one in the book. <laughs> but um, that book was very popular. And my, my next door neighbor came over and he voiced the complaint I've heard from everybody. I can't believe you killed a dog. Halfway through the book to show that there really is a menace, I have the guy kill a dog. And that's the most outrageous thing I have ever done in my books, if you listen to the kids. You can kill them, you can kill vampires, you can kill teenagers, you can kill anybody you like. You kill one dog, and you'll, ne you'll never live it down. And I think that's one of the reasons why they remember that book. I mean, anybody could go around killing kids, but you've really got to be rotten to go and kill a dog, you know. So that, that's the kind of response I find. And I always figured it was safe that they, you know, these kids were wanting safe fear. Um, I was down at the National Conference of Teachers of English in November, and I was talking to some of the teachers there, and I, I came out, I explained my theory that this, this is what these kids want. They have very safe lives for the most part, except for what they see on TV or in the movies and things. Their, their lives are fairly humdrum, and I was shot down in flames for that theory. There were three teachers there from um, an inner school in Dallas, and they said their kids read nothing but horror novels, and they spend half their day ducking bullets. And she said there's absolutely nothing that they ever need to know about fear. They know more about fear than most of us, thank God, ever will. And they read horror novels like nothing. That's the only thing they will read. I, I've talked to so many teachers at this conference, and I would say four out of five of them would say to me, the only thing I can get these kids to read is horror novels. And this is from good areas, from bad areas, from inner cities, from countryside, everywhere. It seems like a, it seems like a plague almost, that all of these kids have caught the horror bug. And I, I'm not sure exactly why they do this, but at least, from my point of view, at least they're reading. At least there is that good thing to say about it. Um, as to why the appeal, I'm not sure. But um, I can tell you, the, these young girls who come down to my door don't want to hear about my new science fiction novel. They don't want to hear about my mystery novels. They want to know when's the next horror book coming out and what is it? Have you got a cover to show us? That's what they're interested in. It's, it's just totally enthralling to them all. The power of fear need not necessarily be conveyed in words, and oftentimes pictures cast a more mysterious spell. The gentleman seated to my left is David Wiesner. Just the day of the week is enough to set some people's spines tingling, especially if it's Tuesday. I'll try this. <laughs> Can you hear this? Okay. Um, when I was asked to take part in this discussion, my first reaction was, well, why me? Um, but then I was reminded that uh, some people find my book scary. It's no by, by no means the dominant reaction. But as I thought about it, I realized that it was a reaction that crops up on a fairly regular basis. 
In fact, the day after it was announced that I had won the Caldecott Medal for my book Tuesday, I was on the Today Show. And I wasn't too nervous, and I was kind of actually enjoying myself when Jane Pauley says to me, quote, I'm not entirely sure I would read this book at bedtime. Is this a silly imaginative book for kids, or are they going to be scared by it? Well, um, frankly, I believe the book can be both those things. That scary element doesn't need to be denied or excised. It's an ingredient as important as humor, suspense, joy, or any other emotional response. I like to use fear in some of its more subtle disguises, a mysterious mood, a quiet uneasiness, a subtle menace, a sense that the world has gone somewhat out of kilter. Fear is an extreme emotion, and it's the extremes of emotion that we tend to make a lasting impression. When I'm asked about books that I liked as a child, the things that stand out most memorably for me are the things that scared me, particularly the visual things, book illustrations as well as movies. One of my most powerful childhood memories centers on James Whitcomb Riley's poem, Little Orphaned Annie. Hopefully people actually know that. Uh, my mother would read this to me and my sister at bedtime, and she would read the refrain, and the goblins will get you if you don't watch out, with real gusto. <laughs> and we would huddle under our blankets and giggle and laugh. It was scary, but we were home in bed with mom, so it was fun. Um, in the book that the... Uh, poem was contained in, there were a couple of illustrations to accompany it, and I would often go back and look at them during the day. Um, they had a more subtle and profound effect on me. The illustrations were black and white halftone. Maybe they were pencil, maybe they were ink wash, I really don't know, but they were very dark and very smudgy. I remember a room with a fireplace, overstuffed armchairs, a low focal point, and lots and lots of shadows, and no goblins. At least none that I could see, but I knew they were there, somewhere in those shadows. The pictures were frightening, yet they were totally compelling. In fact, at, at some point in the early 80s, I went back to uh, the library to try to find a copy of this, because it had been a very long time since I had seen it. And I found a uh, picture book uh, version of the poem in black and white. And my response when I opened it was, no, 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 no. Um, the darkest tones in it were at most halfway down the grayscale halfway between white and total black. And the goblins, which they showed, were big, cute, and goofy. A poem that was meant to scare you was completely diffused. I used to love to watch monster movies. For the first hour, they were great, suspenseful, with fleeting glimpses of something lurking in the shadows. But the point always came when we got to see the monster. And my reaction tended to be, oh, how disappointing. Uh, the hardest part of dealing with fear visually showing it. Your imagination can usually outdo anything I try and hold up to the light and put on paper. The mood and atmosphere are often the most effective parts of these movies. It's those elements I like to use in my books. Tuesday is, to quote Jane, silly and imaginative. When frogs discover the power of flight, humor is obviously at the forefront. When imagining this occurrence, though, it seemed clear to me that it would happen at night, starting in a swamp, lit by the moon. I used a full tonal range from the lightest, the white of the moon, to the darkest darks, shadows in trees and on grass. A full spectrum of deep blues, violets and greens accentuated by an eerie silvery glow from the moonlight to render a dark and mysterious world to play against the sometimes slapstick humor of the frogs. Scary and funny quite often go hand in hand. 
They each have a way of adding an opposing reaction to the other, leaving you sometimes unsure how to respond. In my book, June 29th, 1999, I got to wallow in one of my great visual obsessions, Changes in Scale. Um, this is a book about a third grade science experiment gone wildly successful in which giant vegetables um, come out of the sky and float to the ground. Now, really big vegetables are absurd and funny, but gigantic vegetables floating through the sky are absurd, funny, and menacing. Dozens of lima beans twice the size of a house hovering over a small neighborhood sets up several reactions. How silly, wow, cool, or are they going to land on us? And maybe most terrifying of all, will we have to eat them? Um, <laughs> uh, my most recent picture book, Night of the Gargoyles, deals quite specifically with frightening imagery. Eve Bunting's text tells what happens at, to gargoyles at night when they come down off their buildings. I chose to do black pastel paintings and again emphasize the mood and the atmosphere. Very dark shadows, fog, crumbling stone. I show the gargoyles, they aren't monsters, but they needed a fine balance between humorous and scary. Not cute or lovable, but also not terrifying. Whenever I'm creating a book, I rely on my own sense of what works and what doesn't. I've never shown anything in progress to a child in order to get feedback. Lately, though, I've been closely watching my two-and-a-half-year-old son's reaction to books, and particularly to scary things. We read lots of books, and from all ends of the picture book age range. About four months ago, we were at the library, and Kevin chose a book by Stephen Kellogg called Island of the Skog. It had mice on the cover. Looked cute. Turns out the Skog was a monster, or the Skog in the book was supposed to be a monster, that turned out to be some mice dressed up in a sheet with some wooden poles. They're afraid of some other mice who come to their island, and in the end, everybody's friends. We didn't even make it to the end of the book. Kevin did not like this skog. Even when I showed him that it really was mice in a costume, it didn't matter. He didn't have any nightmares, but for the next week, I had to assure him each day that I had taken this book back to the library. <laughs> I thought I had permanently traumatized my son, but an interesting thing began to happen. Kevin started to work the skog into his play. Little scenarios with trucks and trains might sometimes have the skog show up, and sometimes he was a good guy, not a bad guy. As recently as last week, we were chasing each other around the house, and Kevin's yelling at me, I'm a skog, I'm after you. He had absorbed this scary thing into his world and made it a cast of characters along with Spot, the dog, Sam I Am, and the frogs from Tuesday. Much to my joy and relief, Kevin loves my book, has little plastic frogs he flies around the house. Kevin's reaction about Tuesday is the reaction I've heard hundreds of times from other children. Just recently, I received a letter from a woman telling me how much she and her child loved the book. And then at the bottom of the page, it said, P.S. My sister thought the book was frightening. She's 42. <laughs> so that seems to be where the scary reaction to my book really comes from. There's a certain literal-minded segment of the adult population who seem to have a hard time with a world that doesn't conform to the reality they know. So I do my best to ignore them and trust the kids. I mentioned before the grayscale from white to black. It's most often the darkest tones that people leave out of their drawings. That also applies to the emotional grayscale as well. And my belief in picture making as well as storytelling is don't be afraid of the dark. To my right is 
Ellen Lobretto from the Queen's Library System who guides librarians and works so many parts of this world in reading, choosing, selecting, teaching, um, and has a very large and generous view of this issue. Love, rage, revenge, despair. Adult literature is filled with passages that provoke these emotions in mature readers. Younger readers, however, may lack the life experience to appreciate such passages. This may explain the popularity of the horror genre to these readers. Without exception, the young adult readers with whom I discussed the works of Stein and Pike said the attraction is that the books really are scary. Fear in literature is an emotion that really resonates with teenagers. The emotion of fear, as expressed in literature, is as old as literature itself. Indeed, in all of artistic expression, the emotion of fear is lavishly expressed. Go to any museum and you will see statuary of pre-literate cultures express, expressing the full range of human emotion. But our eyes frequently rest on the piece that is the most frightening, and it is the mystery of fright merged with the grotesque that is so out of the ordinary of our everyday experience that we are most intrigued with and that draws us into the unexplainable. After speaking to many young people, it became very clear to me that the pleasure they derive from reading about frightful situations involving <coughs> danger and creatures and events far removed from their daily lives offer a kind of comfort and emotional quick fix. In their own words, teens and preteens told me that the horror books were fun to read because they were scary. And in this multicultural New York of today, it didn't matter what, country of what the country of origin was for the young people I talked with. The names R.L. Stein and Christopher Pike were volunteered along with Stephen King, B.C. Andrews, and others as favorites. The gut reaction is a simple emotional response this felt in all of us as we are jolted by literature, whether it be when Laura in Margaret Mahi's changeover hears the voice the first time saying it's going to happen, or in Walter Dean Myers' Fallen Angels where 17-year-old Richie Perry confronts the frightening elements of war. Fear is the universal emotion that we all experience. We may not all experience love, but we all experience fear sometimes more of it than we can handle. When you take a moment to survey the field of young adult literature, make sure you take a long moment, it is obvious that this literature that is sometimes referred to as transitional literature is saturated with elements of fear that one can encounter in all of life's mysteries. Indeed, the entire gamut of human experience is packaged in these thousands of volumes. Fear is frequently the primary agent which draws the reader into a story in which the protagonist is moving not just into or out of terror, but into a new phase of physical and emotional life. The world as the adolescent sees it is mirrored in the book's theme, and the anxiety that we share with the protagonist whose struggle is frequently one of life and death while coming of age both attracts and repels us at the same time. The end result, a satisfying read, that gives food for thought and perhaps create a creates a change in the way we perceive the world. Using fear as the bait, 
I see no better way to encourage young people to acquire the habit of lifetime reading. Let's take a brief look at some titles where fear is the central theme with which the main character is grappling. These titles are of universal appeal and are surefire hits with teens the world over. Hinton's The Outsiders, Pony Boy, Alone Against a Rival Gang, Gary Paulson, Paulson's Hatchet, where Brian survives, survives 54 days in the woods after a plane crash. Without fear is the motive for Brian's strength, there would be no story. Gene Wakatsutsi's Houston's Farewell to Manzanar, a haunting portrait of a Japanese family's life totally disrupted by being forced to move to an internment camp during World War II. Bruce Brooks' No Kidding, set in the 21st century where families and society live with the fear of pervasive alcoholism. O'Brien's classic Zipa Zachariah, where 16-year-old Anne thinks she's the last person left alive on Earth. The Silver Kiss by Annette Curtis Klaus, Zoe in Love with a Vampire. Cynthia Kotahata's Floating World, living with a powerful grandmother forever haunted by the role she plays in her death. Cooney's Milk Carton Sagas, Will Janie ever be comfortable coming to terms with the fear of knowing who she really is? Chris Lynch's Davy, living in fear of the meanness of his mother and sister. The Hanged Man, Francesca Leah Block's new novel, a real departure for her this time. Laurel's fear of incest is confronted after the death of her father. Betty Green's haunting portrait of small town religious intolerance and the drowning of Stephen Jones, where the careless actions of young people living in a climate of fear caused the death of a homosexual and Robert Cormier's In the Middle of the Night with the ringing of the telephone to commemorate the anniversary of the accident, accidental death of 16 children in a movie theater cave-in creates a climate of fear for a father and son trying desperately not to let the fear of the past rule their lives. And soon to be published by Holt, We Are Witnesses, the diaries of five teenagers who died in the Holocaust, edited by Jacob Boaz, each recounting a terror-filled time leading up to the life on the way to and in the death camps. And so, you are all doing everything right to allow teenagers the chance to experience fright, either through first-hand experience or through the melodrama of choosing a title called Mesmerized, part of the Bloodlust series published by Bantam, the cover art featuring a blood-red raised teardrop dripping frightfully from a young woman's eyes. I would like to close with the following quote from Franz Kafka from a letter to Oscar Pollock, January 27, 1904. I think you've probably heard this quote a thousand times, but it really seemed like a fit. I think we ought to read only the kind of books that wound and stab us. We need the books that affect us like a disaster, that grieve us deeply, like the death of someone we love more than ourselves, like being banished into forests far from everyone, like a suicide. A book must be the axe for the frozen sea inside us. very fast at the end of their presentation and figure out what you're going to do next. And let's be slightly systematic. I'd like to, to start by taking out of what David Wiesner said about his son, that recognition of fear that comes so very early on and its power for good, the power to incorporate fear that children have that gives them strength, gives them courage, and gives them curiosity. And the way we move with children, watching them read, 
through stories that are on the edge of scary, the borderline between scary and fear, which is really a very subtle and tricky thing to establish. If you think, and I even coming over here tonight recall one of my favorite young Washington lawyers who at the age of two or two and a half had been read the Nutshell Library every night and one night turned to his mother when Pierre was in there and said, no, 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 lions. And then the lions were scary. The, the ability to recognize and suddenly internalize fear and then work it through and move on. Um, perhaps it would be interesting to first ask the panelists about their memory of absorbing fear themselves and when they've mastered it, and books and stories where they've seen mastery used well. Ms. Cornwell? I'm still scared of death. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, uh, life terrifies me, and I think it comes out in my books. And uh, I. Uh, course you learn to cope with it and I think probably writing about it is an act of catharsis and uh, as, as a kid uh, I think fear had a lot to do with uh, the way I grew up I wasn't uh, I wasn't a great student great scholar I wasn't a great athlete uh, I had a bully that uh, was a great part of my life and I think you find bullies everywhere in my books I think I'm still trying to come to terms with this kid that used to chase me almost every day. Uh, I, I met a fellow recently that I hadn't seen for years and years and years. And he said uh, he remembered me uh, from our grammar school days. And he said, what I remember most about you, Bob, he says, you'd leave school and run and run and kept looking over your shoulder. <laughs> and I says, yeah, that guy was chasing me, you know? Uh, so my fear was never the dark as I said I, in my opening remarks, was another the dark. Uh, I had a great father who I knew would keep the boogeyman away. And, uh, but my fear was always the forces outside. The bully, the uh, teacher that looked in my eyes in one grade and knew instantly that I was her enemy. Although I had a lot of teachers who loved me and three teachers had a lot to do with my being a writer. Do you so that kind of fear. Do you remember either in a story that you yourself wrote or one that you read where you recognized working through fear? Uh, let's see. Maybe I can think about that. Come okay. Back later, okay? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Erica Pamela. Um, I knew fear really as something, as an outside thing. Um, I went through some world history that was fearful. However, I had a very cohesive and warm family, and I don't think I as a child was fearful, but I knew very early on that the world is not a safe place. Um, I think, would you elaborate just a little on that? Well, I was a refugee from Nazi Germany, um, from Austria actually, S and I, I was very, very young, but I knew exactly what was happening, and I knew why I was coming to the United States. I was also separated from my parents at a very early age un until they came over. You know, it was one of those things. But I don't think it made me fearful because um, I think what happens to you outside the family, outside the people that you're closest to, while it is fearsome, it does not affect you as deeply 
as what happens to you within the family. So I think I grew up rather securely and not especially fearful. Um, I think everyone has fear, of course, and I think children and adolescents probably more than adults because they're essentially so powerless and so out of control of their lives. That's why I wonder if you remember reading or writing something to yourself that addressed and internalized and conquered fear um, in a way that you I, I can't think of a specific book offhand. I think fear always moves the plot along. I think fear is the what happens next element. And all my writing is sort of therapeutic. I do write for myself, maybe more for than a reader, which is not a too bright a thing to do. But um, yes, I work through my fears. Um, I believe very strongly in taking risks. And I'm forever trying to give myself the courage to take more risks. I really believe in dancing on the edge. And I think writing things out helps me in that way. Uh, but I, in terms of a specific book or a specific plot, um, all of them. Um, you offered, close to close, um, <laughs> you offered two very real examples of, of taking a, a childhood memory and, as an adult, taking an idea and playing it through. Uh, is there fiction that you that you held on to in an adolescence that that addressed those kinds of what ifs? Um, well, actually. I can go back a little bit to where you were starting. Um, one of the, the things, um, sort of a powerful uh, fear for me as a child was uh, uh, something I, both my sister and I uh, would react to was, um, and again, this works into just uh, on my, the visual level. Um, we had a book, great big oversized uh, book, National Geographic, I think, put out. It was really beautiful. It came in a little slip case with this sort of fake... Uh, lizard skin cover or something. And it had to do with not the entire animal world, but um, portions of, I honestly can't remember, but there was a huge section in about insects. And neither of us, we would, we would dare each other to pick up the book and actually turn it to the page with the insects in them and, and touch the page. The power of the images of those insects seemed so real, it was, it was just too creepy to even look at, much less touch, you had to flip past it really quickly. And after a certain point, I pretty much forced myself to, you know, take this out in my room and open it up and just put my hand right down on the picture of this page that was just swarming <laughs> with bugs because it seemed so real and the idea of those swarming bugs was just unbelievably terrifying, but I actually just, you know, I forced myself to go, no, they're there, they're on the page. And the thing was that this, is in fact, was an illustration. They weren't photographs of ants. Uh, it was a forest floor, so there were twigs and leaves and things, and just hundreds of bugs. And to sit there and, and touch that and realize, you know, I really shouldn't be afraid of it, and then to realize that someone had drawn this and that someone could draw something that could be so incredibly powerful um, and drawing was all I did as a kid was... Um, something that really affected me to uh, see if I could create pictures that could somehow hold um, a power like that, a fear and emotion that strong. Um. John Peel, you, you work with very specific images of mm -hmm. precisely the visual sort that David Wiesner described. Do you remember as a child being struck stock still by one? Oh, I was a very scared kid. I mean, I was terrified of everything. 
um, you know, I, I still am in some ways. I was, I was scared of heights. I was terrified of flying. Um, I hated roller coasters, the whole works. I mean, everything you could be scared of, I was scared of. Um, and, and I never read a horror story because they were too scary. Um, so it, it's actually it's quite good because what I do now is when I write these things, I tap into my own fears uh, that I had as a kid and I never really worked out. So I will, I will sort of sit and think, what is something really, really scary? What is something that's going to scare someone? And um, I, I often I'll pull a picture out. I, I, one, of the, one of the things I always thought was the most scariest thing I did. I, I had a book called Simon Says in which this kid can force people to do what he tells them. And he's got this tank with a tarantula in it. And he forces this girl to put her hand in and stroke the tarantula. And the, the whole horror, of course, is that the, the girl is terrified, but she has no option. She has to do it. And, she, and the whole, I, I poured every last bit of hatred of my own scared, scaredness of, of big ugly spiders into this one scene. And it hasn't changed in the slide. I'm still scared of spiders. You know. <laughs> but at least it, it made it a very effective scene. Um, I, I never really, I, I didn't, I mean, I read Dracula when I was like 18. I wouldn't touch it before I was 18. Then it bored me. So it's, it's kind of, I, I miss all the, all the really scary bits. I used to read H.G. Wells and George Byrne and all the fantastic stuff. Um, but even, even in that, I mean, I remember this one passage in um, Journey to the Center of the Earth where the hero is lost underground without life, without his friends, without water. And for me, that was like, this is hell. This is, this is so, you know, utterly claustrophobic and scary. Um, but it was in a book which was mostly filled with wonder. So that, that, that was totally about it. <laughs> mostly, I, I, I just avoided them. Actually, I drew a blank on this, but uh, uh, I think my brother and I were most impressed by slipping into my father's den and reading Grey's Anatomy. Uh, we were just uh, eternally fascinated with it, and uh, we read through it from cover to cover and became experts on diseases such as leprosy and epilepsy, and then we moved on to his psychiatric manuals and uh, really got into schizophrenia. You know, we could even spell it by about fifth grade. And uh, I would say we, we got a big charge out of that. Um, outside of that, I guess I was just like every kid, you know, we, um, we read Grimm's fairy tales, you know, old, old editions that we got from my grandmother's house that, you know, were like falling apart, like pre-paperbacks. And we, we thought they were really scary. We were such square kids, you know. Um, as far as other scariness, I really think the real fright came from films and uh, we were fortunate to have black and white television. And uh, I remember uh, whiling away countless uh, years in front of the million dollar movie, uh, watching horror films. And until we were about 11, these were very scary. And my father would explain to us that uh, we were very affected by what we saw in film. And we should uh, evaluate it and uh, 
really uh, uh, come to terms with it, that it wasn't real, it was just a film. But we never uh, had that feeling about print. Print somehow, even to this day, print is real, you know. Uh, even Mad Magazine seems to hold up as the truth for a librarian. Not supposed to admit to being devious, but they did do exactly what I hoped they'd do. Everyone sitting up here um, comes from a world which is gone, uh, from a world which ended when the Cold War ended, when the wall came down, when PCs got into middle-class homes, when it wasn't just black and white television, but it was cable with all of the glories and all the multiple options, and now CD-ROMs and every other kind of assault on the senses. Every one of us remembers specific books being under the covers, flashlights, specific quite structured images that connect us much more closely with people who sat around campfires millennia ago telling scary stories in the dark. So the question is, is it fundamentally different for the children who are coming along now? The Goosebumps audience don't remember life without VCRs. Uh, a child in my house opened a closet and took out an object and said, Mommy, what's that? Oh, Mommy, is that a typewriter? <laughs> it was a very difficult moment <laughs> and very painful. Um, I would love to hear from these wise people what they think their readers, if they think humanity is fundamentally changed, if what scares us is different, or how it will adapt to this strange new world. Um, I don't think humanity is fundamentally different, but I think uh, to evoke fear, you have to rev it up a little. I think. Um, we have such an onslaught of fearsome things that I don't think it's the little things anymore. I think to get a shock from someone, I think we have to go wouldn't further. Wouldn't it be just the opposite? I mean, couldn't you argue that in a world, in a Cold War world, where there was an absolute enemy, that life was in fact more fearful? Um, I wonder if it was so for children, if they were, if you know, if it was more of an adult thing and. What I remember is ducking under the desk in case of nuclear attack, and I did not for a minute really believe that I was about to be attacked, and I really didn't think that ducking under the desk would help, so it seemed more of a joke. Uh, I got a thought that doesn't go along with Carl, but it goes along with the changing uh, values today, changing your days just three or four years ago and all I worried about was whether people like me and now every month I worry about whether I'm pregnant or not and you know that's a kind of a horror too of the kind of readership that we have and the kind of kids that are out there and uh, it, it just 
know, uh, there's millions of these YA books. They're fearful. I mean, I mentioned some of the new ones. Um, uh, you know, uh, it was uh, Chris Lynch's Davy and um, Francesca Leah Black. And I mean, they're taking um, modern life and sort of uh, uh, pinpointing uh, these episodes, the possible episodes, probable episodes in adolescent light and life and packaging them uh, so that uh, it's absolutely like reading the profile of the teenager next door. Uh, I mean, there's no doubt about that. But, um, you know, you talk about the Cold War, and um, I I'm not so sure that kids today have a concept of uh, much geography outside of, uh, you know, the town they live in. I mean, they get uh, the wars mixed up. You know, what came first, Vietnam or World War II? And, and I'm not kidding, you know. Um, but I, I, I think that um, really uh, this whole horror genre, you know, Goosebumps, I mean, I have a big Barnes & Noble near me. They have this Goosebumps club. I can't believe they need it, you know. You would think they couldn't keep the books on the shelf. I, I couldn't even find the books in our 63 libraries to study. You know, I had to go to three or four Barnes & Nobles to look at them. They're so popular. I don't see anything wrong with that. And I would say that the rest of the books that are kind of scary, are going to get this big boost, you know, in readership and sales as a result of the uh, uh, magical effect that Stein has on his readers. And I, I don't think that these books are doing any harm. Um, I mean, I think it's really healthy to be afraid. Um, in Europe, I've visited uh, many libraries in Europe over the years. Europeans have a very healthy attitude about fear. It's a natural and essential part of childhood. It's a it's an emotion that uh, translates into uh, accepting other emotions in life because it comes down so hard on you. And uh, listen, if they can get it from literature rather than some of the other uh, stuff in our society, I don't see anything wrong with it. Um, it's a release. Uh, it gives them something to talk about. They get excited. Uh, you can't imagine how excited these kids are when they find an R.L. Stein or a Christopher Pike, or, and we have John Peel here, on the shelf, you know, that they haven't read. And uh, since when have we seen that kind of joy in reading? Uh, of course, they, they do read Robert Corrigan now. I'm not going to say they don't. But under different circumstances, for the most part, as a book for discussion. Uh, but, but there's something really wonderful that's um, going on in adolescent literature today that I haven't seen in the 28 years that I've been working in these New York City libraries. And that's kids coming into the library knowing who the authors are. And it's very possible that they'll graduate from uh, these base level authors uh, to other ones and maybe uh, appreciate literature and become readers and be able to participate uh, in our society. Because uh, you know what the statistics are in literacy and you know what the reading scores are in this city. And I can tell you, at the moment, things are not getting any better. Well, speaking of participating in society, I think it's time for you to join the conversation. <laughs> Let's go from the back to the front. Neil?
Okay, I've just been passed a note asking me to ask you to either use the microphone or for me to repeat or paraphrase the question. So I'll paraphrase that one, which was addressed to David Wiesner, asking, and I'm so glad you did, what experience he's had in using his books, specifically Tuesday, with older or adolescent audiences? Um, the response, as I had mentioned, was one from a two-and-a-half-year-old and one from a 42-year-old. And I have heard from just about everyone in between as well, um, which has been a thrill for me, um, particularly with um, the fantasy-related books that I've done, um, which, is, which is great because there's a, there's a segment in there that you, know, you grow out of the picture book and you can go for a long time, and then there's a lot of adults who seem to come around and pick up picture books. Um, but it's great when I hear from fifth grade teachers and high school teachers who say they've brought in um, some of my books and had this real response um, from the students. And I think that's great because it seems like the visual end of things tends to, to fade out after a while, which obviously I'm uh, a great believer in uh, words and pictures working together and not just, it doesn't have to be just for young kids. Um, one of the reactions probably to books like Tuesday I think adults have is, they're, I don't want to say they're, they're realistic, they're not photorealistic, they're stylized, but they're very richly detailed and in um, st strong lighting and um, focal points and they usually seem to react well. Are little kids going to get this? Are they going to uh, aren't they going to be scared by it? And obviously that, that doesn't seem to be the case, but it's also something that brings in um, older kids back to a form that they might kind of look at and go, well, that's just for little kids, um, which, is, which has really been great. Um, you know, I hope there's a really wide age range who can respond to the stories, and granted, if the text is small or non-existent in my case, um, they can get lost in those pictures and follow that imaginative streak wherever it goes. Have you had done any tracking? I've, I've seen Tuesday and um, June 20, 20, 1994. Um, 99. 99. Oh. It was the wrong title to pick. <laughs> no one can remember. <laughs> it was the, the vegetable book. The vegetable book. Yeah. Um, and some of Chris Van Allsburg's books used with writing classes in 6th, 7th, and 8th grade um, very successfully. Yeah, um, the wordless books that I've done have, that's, I never would have predicted that the response would have come from that segment. Um, teachers using them in creative writing classes, English as a second language classes, but really on a, on a much older level, bringing them in and um, using them as jumping off points to, uh, you know, spark that imagination. And um, the, I have piles and piles of them. Uh, stories that have been written to those books, um, again, from a, a huge age range. And it's, it's pretty wild to see where the kids go with, um, particularly Tuesday, imagining the next Tuesday. Uh, one kid who has a story in which uh, the, the pigs at the end go flying and the they pull the children in the neighborhood out of the houses through the roofs and the parents wake up and they're so amazed because the kids have actually turned into these pigs and the parents all die and the kids come down and they pour salt on them and then they turn into cockroaches. I mean, <laughs> this was a kid who's probably going to need therapy, but <laughs> I mean, it's 
they take them to these really, really strange places. I mean, you know, I guess get asked where the idea for that came from and look at some of the versions that come back and go, wow. <laughs> There's some really interesting uh, things that these kids are working out with them. Yes. I have to repeat or paraphrase for the microphone for the recording. The question is to Erica Tamar and it's about um, the books that she has written in which fear is not easily and instantly resolved, in which there's no automatic plot resolution and there's a fair amount of ambiguity. Um, in the letters that I've received, uh, the kids really don't write to me about their particular anxiety level, but they do write comments, which is kind of sad, I think. Uh, along the lines of that's the way it is. There's an identification. Uh, some of the fearsome attitudes that I wrote about are familiar to them. Well, actually, I was going to talk about the same split, but uh, I just wanted to say to you, Ian, that when you were saying about this potential shift, I mean, this has been the most Aristotelian discussion <laughs> that I've heard since I was in college <laughs> philosophy class. And so there's nothing more <laughs> well, why don't you just use the mic because you've got a lovely soft voice. <laughs> I did happen to see uh, Rosemary Killen's uh, rendition of Tuesday as a uh, videotape. Response to it on in that media. What level children? It takes on a life of its own. You know, a page is one thing. You can bring something to it, but once it's there, what is? What have you found from the teachers and students? Um, you know, I have to say I haven't gotten a lot of feedback about that. Um, she's the question to was a about uh, the video of Tuesday. Um, it was interesting uh, to see that. Um, it sort of brought up some of the limits of scanning art and uh, sticking with just what's there to sort of graft one media onto another. Um, but I honestly haven't gotten a whole lot of feedback. I don't know where that uh, the audience was, was for that. Um, so... Um, well, as with a wordless book, and this is a wordless video, yeah. were you involved in the, in the making of that in any way? I was asked if I wanted to be, but it would have taken, it could have been a full-time, you know, project for me for which I would not have been because compensated. That was, that was, that was <laughs> a lot of computer art. That was a lot of computer Yeah, they, they used some computer animation to, uh, mm -hmm. to deal with it, but they were stuck with just the art that was there, and it needed just more and more to, to really fully explore it. The nice thing about it on the page is your mind can 
take it wherever it goes. In a video, it was made a little more concrete, and you could only go where it took you. Um, so would so you want to do that again if you had the choice of uh, doing by the book? If I had a budget of uh, s several million dollars and maybe Disney working with me, that would be great. But on that level, um, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't always come across. It's interesting. Oh, well, okay. no. I was just going to go back to the, we were talking about uh, technological shifts. Um, and uh, I too grew up watching, you know, Million Dollar Movie and uh, where I saw my old horror films. And one of the things that I've noticed with kids today is they, the VCR, um, I have a funny reaction to it because there was this uh, something about seeing. King Kong or The Wizard of Oz come by once, you know, maybe once a year you got to see it. And it, it sort of, you know, these great moments flew by and you had to keep them and try to retain them. And everybody I know who has kids, they have the VCR and the kids almost just sit there and watch the same thing four times a day, over and over and over again, Wizard of Oz or something scary or, or not, but it almost seems like it, uh, you lose the ability to imagine it, uh, keep it alive in your mind well in a certain way. Okay, there, um, there comes the question about the deliciousness of fear and the deliciousness, the special deliciousness of the written word or the story that is read to you and whether or not it is diminished on a flat surface, whether it is diminished by being able to click just to the scary bit. I mean, part of the pleasure of going back to the books that you love, whether it's H.G. Wells or Robert Cormier or, you know, choo choose what it was, is knowing the chapter before, before you get scared, before things get really uncomfortable, before, and knowing the third time and the ninth time that it's coming, and then seeing a word or a phrase that you hadn't caught before and suddenly having it resonate. Um, and so I suppose the, the question, if it is a question, is about both the flattening of surface and the flattening of text. Um, if, if we're talking about the disposable fiction, the fiction that kids read once and pass on, uh, is that more like something where you, you click it on and, and you've absorbed everything there is to it, or the really great bits of the great movies which the kids know and the great bits of the great books. I, I ramble, John Peel. Um, I, I think for, from my point of view as a writer, um, the, the very fact that these kids can go and they don't have to read a book. When I was growing up, you either read a book or you occasionally you could watch TV if, um, if you were lucky. Um, but mostly, uh, I got most of my entertainment from reading. Nowadays, they get most of their entertainment, as has been said, really, from the VCR. So from my point of view, the challenge is not just simply to, to write a book, but to write a book that's going to be better than anything they can see on, a, on the movies. And I mean, I, I don't look on other writers as competitors. I look on Steven Spielberg as the competitor. I mean, Jurassic Park is the competitor. They're not, you know, if they're either going to read or they're going to watch a movie. And you've really got to do something pretty spectacular in print if you're going to get them away from that TV set. So what I always try and do is I try and do something which has as much imagination, um, if they're willing to read, as these movies have. 
which means in you know inevitably I'm stuck with thinking all right what would I what would I do if I had a Steven Spielberg budget and were filming this what would I be doing what can I do in this book which is just so off the wall outrageously um, exciting that these kids aren't going to want to put the book down you know you've got to keep them reading you've got to keep them interested otherwise it's going to be back to the TV set and, and I think that's a, a I think it's a challenge not just for the horror writer, obviously, but for any writer nowadays. The attention span isn't there for the reading that it was. And the good thing about the horror books is that this is where the kids are willing to invest their attention. Um, as, as Ellen was saying, the kids who don't read will read um, s you know, Pike and Stein and other horror books. They will actually spend the time on it. So this is our chance to grab the audience. And what I try and do is... I will throw in a lot of references to other things. Um, I have a book coming out called Maniac. Now, I mean, guaranteed, great title. The kids are going to snap on the title straight away. Um, I wanted to call it Insomniac, but my editor thought nobody would know what that was. Um, so we ended up calling it Maniac. But one of, the, one of the subtexts in the book is that one of the kids is, um, is a violinist. And I, I make her a very good violinist. And I do a lot of talking about things like Vivaldi. Now, I don't think kids are going to read my book and think, oh boy, I better go and listen to some Vivaldi. I mean, that's not likely to happen. But maybe the, the thought will stay in their minds after the book is finished. Maybe they'll think, if they hear somebody mention the name or, or talking about violin music, maybe they'll think, oh yeah, I remember that. Maybe I'll listen. So I, I try and sneak in a few little um, things here and there that hopefully will sort of stick like um, fish hooks in their minds. Um, try and sneak it in. I'll, I'll mention other books by other writers um, that I admire, uh, and generally not horror novels either, so that maybe they'll think, well, gee, I enjoyed this book, and if he thinks that's a good book, maybe I'll go and try that one next. That, that kind of thing. You, you try all kinds of subtleties to keep them away from the VCR. Um, I think you have to. You know. Oh, yes, sorry. Uh, I, I think uh, writers are always helping each other, and uh, we all have landmark books, but I think the horror books out there, for instance, Stephen King uh, has set us free to write a lot of horror we might not have written. And, uh, or even in a book that isn't a horror story but deals with horrible things like some of my books. Uh, I think subconsciously, I didn't sit down and say, ah, Stephen King has freed me to write this way. But I think Stephen King, a lot of other people, have freed us to go uh, that way with the horror, to, to stretch it a little further than we might not have. So I think in a sense we're, we're all helping each other. We're all opening horizons for each other when we learn from each other that way. Yeah. This lady's been waiting patiently. I wonder how the panel would react to this. It would seem to me that the need for horror has existed probably in every age, but has had different satisfactions. The queen has three, they were afraid of the gods and goddesses. In the medieval times, they were afraid of This lady has uh, echoed a theme that 
the need for horror has been there from time immemorial. The methods of appeasement have changed, and she wonders what lies ahead. Would anyone care to speculate? <laughs> I, think you're, I think you're dead right, actually. I think it's a great point. Um, and I think almost everybody in the publishing field will tell you we don't know what's ahead. If we did, we'd be writing it and publishing it and getting it out there before anybody else does. Um, who knows? <laughs> that lady said we have Newt Gingrich for starters. <laughs> Questions from all the way in the back. Ah, the question is, do children's books have a responsibility to be hopeful? Do they, must they carry a moral message? Ellen. Well, of course, for years and years at the library, this was the uh, deciding factor. And would, should we acquire this book? Is the message hopeful? Does it give hope? Or is this a book that uh, shows teenagers that the world you know, is out to get them or there's no good? Well, if we were to use that criteria solely today, um, we'd be giving the money back to the city of New York. Uh, I think that um, most of the books we try to um, acquire uh, are somewhat hopeful. Um, you know, um, Everyone doesn't commit suicide in these books, and uh, in the horror books, uh, there is a sort of melodramatic uh, thread running through that most teenagers can identify as not being real. And I, d I don't think that that um, removes us from our uh, selection criteria, that is, uh, should the book show hope and promise. But uh, we've really uh, sort of relaxed the rule on that. Um, because of the um, overriding forces in our society and uh, the, the events that take place in our daily, daily lives. Uh, but this is reality. But I, I just wanted to say one thing. Uh, I interviewed the daughter of someone in the audience here, a uh, 15-year-old daughter, about uh, what she was reading, and particularly in the horror genre. And she, she, she spoke to me very nicely. And, happily about the books and she, she couldn't uh, smile enough as she talked about being scared. And then I asked her about the films uh, she was uh, seeing and what was her favorite film that she'd seen this year. And I was really surprised when she said uh, uh, she liked that film When a Man Loves a Woman and she found that very frightening. And that is a frightening film about a woman who's an alcoholic. And so I, I don't want to say what the next wave will be, but perhaps the next wave will be fear of relationships, fear of family, fear of living. Uh, because uh, if a teenager responds to a film like that uh, with such interest and enthusiasm, uh, it shows that there's uh, this incredible um, message in our society about the stages of life and the behavior of people and the addiction process that uh, adults seem to be going through it. And it, it, it was absorbing to her, and the fact that she identified this movie among many that she had seen this year 
as something that she really sunk her teeth into, I found uh, a very disturbing. I hope that isn't the next wave of the future. Um, but perhaps from the horror fantasy uh, genre, we'll slip back into reality. That's very possible. About the question of the message, I, uh, I look upon myself as a storyteller first. And I think I owe the, the reader a, a credible story with real characters they can identify with. And uh, further than that, I'm not interested in, in thinking, am I giving a, a good message or a bad message? I can't afford to sit at my typewriter, I still use my, <laughs> <laughs> my old L.C. Smith, and, uh, and worry about the sensibilities of a 14-year-old kid who might read my book. On the other hand, uh, you, uh, you can find messages there. I suppose the chocolate war, uh, which has been called so bleak uh, that it, it, you know, some people pointed out, well, the fact that Jerry was defeated in disturbing the universe because no one came to his to his rescue, and so the implicit lesson there is, you know, bad things happen when good people do nothing. And yet, I must say, I did not have that in mind when I uh, wrote the book. Uh, you know, was it uh, Samuel Goldwyn who said? You know, if you want to send a message, use Western Union. <laughs> and uh, I still think that's, that's valid for a certain type of book, uh, especially for my type of book. Uh, I agree with that, absolutely. Uh, I think if you try to paste on a message or try to paste on a moral lesson, uh, one, your book will not be interesting. Two, your book will not be believable. I think kids have very fine antenna for knowing when something is being foisted upon them. I think it's the responsibility of a writer to write as truthfully as she can. Uh, I think it's fine to have hope if the writer believes that there is hope, and I as a writer do. I mean, I, I don't believe in giving up. Um, I think people can change. If that comes through in my books, I think that's hopeful. But I, I would never set out to give a lesson. That's for nonfiction. That's for a, a grammar book. I'm, I'm going to stand out a little bit here. <laughs> what I tend to do when I write books, I mean, I don't think I'm in the business of preaching. Um, having said which, I do think, obviously, I have certain values that I believe in, which are bound to come through in what I write, because I'm writing the book, after all. And, I mean, what I write is going to be part of me. Uh, most of my horror stories have fairly upbeat endings. The monster gets it, the heroine wins, but there's usually a price paid on the way. I mean, it's not... It's not a simple cut and dried, good wins, bad losers, everybody's happy. There's usually ends up with good wins, bad losers, and we've got three dead people on our hands that you just simply can't, you, you can't say these people are just victims. Um, I always try and point out that these are people. The, the dead, you know, whatever the monster's killed is not just some statistic. It's a friend of the character or it's someone, you know, someone close. Um, I, I try and point out that each death, each victim, I is a diminishing. So although the heroine will win through at the end of the book, she doesn't come out unscathed. She, she doesn't come out having said, well, gee, isn't life wonderful? We beat the, li you know, the living daylights out of this creep. It doesn't work quite like that. On the other hand, every now and again, I'll write a book which has a very downbeat ending just for the sheer hell of it. Um, so it's some books every now and again, especially the Shocker series I wrote, where the idea is that the ending should be a surprise. Um, every now and again, the, the, the bad guys will win. And um, th that's just, just 
purely for the shock value, um, not because I'm, I'm not an optimist. I'm, I'm terribly optimistic myself, so I, I tend to be very optimistic in my books. Um, but as I say, every now and again, I, I just reverse that and do something really awful at the end of the book, and that's it. Um, you know, I, I had a, a couple of letters about one of the books where I did that, and the, and the kids were very disappointed in the ending because they felt that the good guys should have won. And I sort of said, well, sorry, they didn't in that case. Uh, read one of my other books. They win in most of them, so you, you'll find it in the other books. But, but generally speaking, I, I do try and be as uplifting as possible, but at the same time try to be s sort of soberly realistic in saying it comes with a price. It's not, it's not simple. It's not easy. to realize that the very end of it is essentially the, the moral is and pay attention and listen to your parents and teachers or the goblins will get you and you don't watch out if you don't watch out which is the one thing that absolutely hadn't stuck in my mind about this little poem <laughs> I remember all the great little scenes of, of terror that were evoked were great but the moral of it I was surprised in fact that that was there Were you able to hear this gentleman? Good. Okay. Yes.
Well, but let's pause and ask the, the panel a little bit. This lady has offered her own experience of, as a child of the catharsis of fear uh, at a time when her mother was undergoing surgery. Um, do you find that, that in the explicit discussion of fear that there's catharsis for your readers? Do you hear about Let's start with Bob. Yeah, I hear that all the time. Well, in this way, uh, most of my letters, the, the kids say, uh, what I liked about the book is you tell it the way it is, or things like this are going on in my life. It's probably not chocolates, but it's something else. And there's a validation of what I write there all the time. And I think it is cathartic for them to know that someone else feels this way. I received a letter, uh, uh, I'm sorry, a phone call from a girl in a psychiatric clinic in uh, Connecticut. As some of you may know, my phone number is in one of my books. and. Uh, People hear about it, of course, because I go around the country telling them my phone number's in the book. And uh, anyway, she called me, and she just read I Am the Cheese, and she was clinging to the book like as if she were on a life raft because she said, I am Adam. She said, I haven't had any identity. She said, I don't have any family right now. And, uh, and here's a book that some people have, you know, criticized for being downbeat and cruel, and this, this teenager found it uh, a lifeline because it validated her as a person because she could identify with the character. And this happens letter after letter that I receive, whether it's Chocolate War, Mind the Cheese, After the First Death, you know. Well, I'd say the one comment that the teenagers made to me when I talked to them was that they feel terrific when they finish these books because it, it didn't happen to them, it happened to someone else. And they're so grateful that uh, they're unscathed. But, you know, I hate to be flippant about this whole topic of the horror genre in particular, but when I was preparing this talk, I actually had a different talk that I changed because I, I decided I didn't like it. But I was going to start out by saying that it's unfortunate that uh, our president isn't aware of the popularity of these books because I think if we exported these books instead of cars, we could wipe out the national debt in two weeks. <laughs> you know, uh, the, the power of these books uh, perhaps is in the fear, or perhaps you have to be a 12-year-old, you know, to appreciate them, because I really struggled to get beyond the first few chapters, and I can't imagine writing them, you know, the process, the time travel that the author must have to go through to get this stuff out. But, you know, the proof is in the pudding, and the kids love these books, and I mean, I've never heard anything really but something positive coming out of young people who are lining up to meet R.L. Stein and Christopher Pike and God help us and save us if Stephen King should ever appear in Macy's, you know. So um, I, I really don't think uh, there's anything more to say except for the fact that uh, there are strain now like Nancy Drew and uh, some of the other uh, genre that uh, popular literature has um, passed through. And we should accept them for what they are and uh, let them sort of sit out there for as long as uh, they can survive as paperbacks. And when they really turn yellow and their publishers are tired of them and they, they don't, the presses can't take their giant press runs anymore, we'll move on to something else. Yes. My first question is, of the books that are available for children today, what percentage is about fear or horror? 
Oh gosh, the question is what percentage of the books available for children today, what percentage is about fear and horror and we're all sort of shaking our heads and I Almost think it's everything. unanswerable yeah. because you can, if you get, get into the internal themes uh, as several of the panelists have, have said, challenge, challenge is often presented in a, a fearful way. But I'm fearful that unless we give him a chance to say one last thing, the real horror of this escapade is that David Wiesner will miss his train. <laughs> so the if you had a parting thought, then we can watch you. Because we don't have to leave with the same. Talking to the mic. Absolute surety. Sort of get lost in the middle of the percentages of that. Well, in, you know, in, in thinking through, let, let me do one last question to David Wiesner, if, if you don't mind. Um, in organizing your work and, and looking at the way um, you develop books that are often wordless, which incidentally allows me the parenthetical observation about how powerful wordless books are with people who are illiterate or speak other languages and gives them an ability to tell a story freely and with confidence. Um, but in thinking through your ideas, is there a, a, the picture that comes to your mind first, does it make you smile? It does. It makes me smile. It's the interesting thing about humor and fear is there tends to be a lot of times the flip side of uh, two sides of a similar coin in a lot of horror films. There's always points at which there is this comic relief to break that tension and get back into it. And for me, the humor is probably the overriding um, emotion. Well, it is. It, again, it's, it's a complex thing. It's a combination of humorous but strange. Um, and as I said, from a visual point of view, taking the, 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 the trappings of the scary uh, qualities um, the mood, the atmosphere, some of the, the edginess and, and grafting it with inherently silly or funny things to create something that may make you go, uh, you know, start to laugh and then catch yourself or um, just keep something that works on two tracks. Do you um, find that you start and stop, that you think an idea may be amusing and you are halfway through figuring out a book and then it's not funny anymore or it loses its interest? Um, that happens in uh, mostly in the mental process to, yeah. to make sure it's yeah it it has to twist and turn and, and find its way getting there. Um, I have to say that right now I'm uh, working on a book to kind of deal with that uh, childhood uh, reluctance to uh, to see and touch those bugs and uh, doing a picture book it's that concerns bugs. So I'm, I, I guess I'm working through that visual uh, fear for myself at this point. But. Because several people here have talked about being storytellers and not knowing until they finish what, what the story is. And yet, as an artist, as someone who works with picture books, you have to have uh, the end of the story before you really flesh it out, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, the thing about, particularly with wordless picture books, is um, uh, 
for the most part, they can be read so many different ways. Um, that's one of the, the great things. I have a reasonable idea of, of what it is I'm writing, but uh, writing with pictures. Um, but it takes the reader of those pictures to uh, complete that particular book because there is no author's voice telling the story to them. They're, they're telling it um, to themselves as they, they read the pictures. And uh, I try to put as much as possible into the pictures um, to tell multiple levels of, of stories. And um, what I think the story is about, I again, I've received letters where someone has seen something completely differently. So um, I may have my version, but there's many others out there. Thank you very much. And unfortunately, run. I do have to run. Run. So. <laughs> <laughs> now, we don't have to get up. Now, Stephen Kroll is going to raise his arm and go like that when we're supposed to cut everybody's throats. But until then, we can sit and talk. Um, so if there are more questions. Yes. Having worked with children uh, as well as adults, always impressed me how different youngsters, different young adults, and even mature ones will read the same book and come up with a completely different response. You feel that sometimes we the author has spoken to a different author. hear this question, this rather eloquent discussion of the level of response. Erica St. Morgan, um, I'd love to answer to that. Um, if I were thinking of who was reading my book, what they would get out of it in a very specific way, I would be absolutely paralyzed and I would stop writing. Um, I am writing to communicate, but I'm also writing of my own passion. And uh, I hope that I have perhaps a minority audience who enjoys reading, 
which uh, nothing against movies. I think movies are fine too, but I, I hope I write for a literate audience. I get literate letters. I do write for an older audience. And what the reader gets from it, I may not really know. Uh, I hope empathy. I hope I've opened the door to thought. Um, I think I put things in a book, as I said, where I don't really know the subtext until I'm finished myself. And things are left open to interpretation. I mean, I think they're broad things that are not, but there are many, many things that are left open. I also think a reader will pick up what he's ready for, a young reader who might be too young for my books, um, might just simply not understand certain parts and doesn't hurt, you know, that's kind of skipped over and may get something else. But as a writer, I really have to write for myself. Uh, I gladly accept the label of young adult author because of the great audience I have. You know, teachers out there who are my best friends teaching my books and librarians who recommend them. But in my heart, I have yet to write a young adult novel. I write novels about young people. And my audience, I, I do have a specific audience, a, a very intelligent reader who likes me, who uh, put up with some of the things that I know I'm going to put into the books. And that, in, that very intelligent reader often turns out to be 12 years old, or 14, or 45. But I, I just have this reader with whom I can work to the fullest of my craft. And it turns out that they are young adult books, and I'm happy to have that, uh, that designation. And yet I don't sit down and say, well, I'm going to write a book for a 14-year-old. And uh, I feel the way Erica does. That would be impossible for me to do, uh, to make that leap into a 14-year-old mind. And yet I do it all the time, uh, indirectly. Well, I'm in the minority again. Um, I, I always sit down before I even start writing the book and I say, who is this book for? Um, when, when I write, I always say, who, who is this book aimed at? If you're aiming it at a fifth grader, you write it in one direction. If you're aiming it at a young adult, you write it in another direction. If you write it for an adult, you can write it in an entirely different vein. Um, I, I shape all of my stories depending on who the audience is. Um, very specifically, I mean, for example, uh, if I'm writing a book that's going to be read by fourth or fifth graders, then I don't write um, romantic subplots. There's, there's no boy-girl stuff in that. They, the boys and the girls can be friends, and they very often are, but it doesn't go beyond that. If you're writing for young adults, if there's not some romance in there, they're going to hate, the, you know, hate reading the book. So you, you, you tailor it that way. If you're writing for adults, you can put anything in you like within certain limits. Um, I, I think actually the young adult audience is my favorite simply because they're, they are more accepting. You can get wilder, you can do crazier things. You can, you can stretch their imagination in ways that you can't do with younger children because they're not ready for it. And you often can't do with adults because they don't want it. So, so I really enjoy writing for the young adult market. Um, but, but I definitely tailor my books. I tailor the fears that the characters will have. I, I always have sort of subtexts to the books um, in which the major character either has a problem of some kind which has to be resolved, which is not directly relevant to the horror story, um, or something along those lines. I mean, I, I, I deal with problems. In, in one of my horror novels, one of the main characters is um, being shuttled back and forth between parents who are divorced. And the mother doesn't want her, and the father does, but she can't accept it. She wants the mother to love her. 
And that, that's part of the subtext. And I, I think this is a problem that the children who are reading it can, pro can, it brings them into the horror story more if they feel they can understand and identify with the character's problems. Um, whereas when I'm writing for younger readers, it's usually more along the lines of, um, am I being thought a wimp? You know, should I really be doing these sort of things? Is this, you know, how do I get into this group of kids that I want to be friends with? That kind of stuff. You're dealing with a different kind of reaction because different things are important to them. Um, if you're writing for adults, obviously you, you can go into vastly more intricate responses, but, but I, I, I definitely tailor my stories for the audience. I, I, I specifically write, um, I mean, I don't, the one thing I don't do is I don't write down if I'm writing for fifth graders. I mean, that, that's a no-no. You do not write down to that age group. You write simpler, but that's not the same thing. So, I mean, as I say, I, I'm, I'm in the minority again. I do tailor my works. Um, but uh, then again, I consider myself a storyteller rather than a writer, I suppose. And it, my, my theory is if you're telling a story, you tell a story. And it, it's kind of like the old, you know, when you're in the Middle Ages, the troubadours would go around to the fairs, and they would, they would sing their songs, and they would tell their stories, but the audience would, would select what it was they were going to sing or what they were going to tell then it was up to them to put their own mark on that story. That's how I feel I work. Um, I, I work in a specific group, or a, an age group, but I put my own mark on that age group. I write it my way. You can write anything. Um, there is a possibility for any kind of story. It depends on how you do it. Um, my, my story, Maniac, is not about a maniac. Um, I, I, it, that's the title of the story because that's what I was forced into doing. Uh, that, that was my publisher's title. It, of course it's evocative, but it's meant to be evocative because that's what the kids who read these books want. What, what actually the story is about is about insomnia. Speaking so, of which, <laughs> the time may have come. Uh, <laughs> we can stay a little longer. <laughs> <laughs> All the way over there. question is about the plot and the story based on a real incident. Well, um, it was based on a real incident, but I used the bare bones of the real incident. Uh, the real incident stimulated me into starting the book. Uh, but in writing fiction, I was very careful not to do any research. I know nothing about the real people. I invented my own people, uh, people that I thought I knew from knowing the high school scene and knowing the teenage scene, but they were my people. And I went from there. Uh, there is an implicit message, I think, because um, I do have a point of view. I do have a sense of right and wrong. But uh, my way of writing is not to present a message, but present an appreciation, accretion of detail.
things happening, people reacting to each other, and it builds into a something, I hope. But I would never, I mean, I don't want to preach. I don't want to be unreal. And also, I don't have total villains, and I don't have total virtuous victims. My retarded girl is not especially likable. And the bad guys, uh, in some cases, are very charming and have many likable traits because I think that's the way life is. I mean, I think that's real. No. I knew the events of the, the bare bones of the story from the newspapers. I mean, I, I read the newspaper. Right. I don't think I sensationalized it. I mean, that, that wasn't what I was trying to do. I was moved by it, and I was trying to uh, give a real-life picture of high school as I had seen it. see Vita and uh, Virginia, and I remember very uh, carefully one particular scene between the two of them where Virginia Woolf keeps saying, no, 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 unless you have the rhythm, you're not writing. Now, as a, as a you're a librarian, am I correct? In the early days, when the children first come to the library, or they hear storytelling, there are things that are scary that they love. They don't, you might not even want to tell the end of the story. How do you think it ends, start in the middle, start beginning, whatever. We're using books and whole language methods in school. We're doing a lot of things with books that were in bookstores that are now in schools. Is the writing getting better? Is it getting fuller? Is it getting thinner? Is it getting, Johnny still can't read. I mean, we have, you just said, the scores are horrible. What are we doing? with something, instead of making this an aberration, this will go away, this is like the Nancy, are we doing something that we can use and utilize so that we can get them into other kinds of literature? Is there something going on with this that, that is at a more wholesome level, let's put it that way? Well, one of the realities of New York City is why the schools are so terrible is because 80% of some of these classes are composed of new arrivals, and you can't ask a kid who's come from Afghanistan or Russia or China three months ago to take a reading test designed for the American child. I mean, and, and I think that the Board of Education doesn't stress that enough for the general public. So when we read the scores, we say, hey, what are they doing, you know? But um, I have some librarians here in the audience who work with me, and uh, maybe they'd like to comment a little bit about um, what's actually happening on the floor. Robin, did you want to say something? Here's what's going to happen. We're going to, we're going to conclude the formal part of the program and ask people to speak. In Here's what's happened. The magic finger was cut <laughs> across, which means that we're going to conclude the formal part of the program. 
But as Ellen says, several of the librarians that she works with are here in the room, and there are various people who might like to continue their conversations. We all thank you very much for attending. I thank Penn for organizing the program. I've had a wonderful time. <laughs>